Hello, everyone. Happy Thursday. It's Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays, and I'm your host, Brooke Hammerling. Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays. Hi, guys. Well, I was just telling David, my amazing producer, that this may very well be the last podcast. And I say this because I have a guest today who is a unicorn, and for those who know him, will be astounded that I have secured time with him, that he showed up, that he's here, that he is actually in front of me and I am having him as a real guest. He is not recorded from another time dimension. It is really the one and only Jason Hirschhorn, who I'm going to tell you who Jason Hirschhorn is, but so everybody knows proof of life. Jason, say hello. Hey, how are you? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the unicorn with the uh, spear coming right out of my ball spot. <laughs> well, Jason, I mean, you know, the reason I tease you is because, uh, as all of your friends know, you're a mystery wrapped in an enigma. And um, we can find you in certain moments in time and then we can't find you. And um, I have been trying to get you to do this pod for a while. I've been trying to get you to come to my house, which has not yet happened. Um, we did get to have a great breakfast at the diner at Beverly Hills Hotel, which I will always hold dear to me. But if you guys Google Jason, his like somebody is trying to dark arts him and has taken most of his wiki off, which we can get into. But Jason is an icon. He is a media and tech entrepreneur. Uh, many of you have seen him, his newsletter, Media Redefined. He is at the forefront of all things media and technology. He comes from, uh, I mean, Viacom, where he was at MTV forever. He was at Sling, which was the most incredible and important technology company that I can think of in terms of a generational shift to how we uh, view content and listen to content and all of that. You were at MySpace back in the day, and now he is another one of these. He's I followed him, New Yorkers who have relocated to Los Angeles. How's that for an intro? Not bad. I mean, I'm still on MySpace. That's probably why you can't find me. (laughs) How long were you at MySpace? This is like the second iteration of MySpace. Not that long, like like uh, eighteen months. Um, right. Maybe, you know, maybe secretly two years. Um, right. Right. Le- learned a lot, but wasn't wasn't for me. No. No. Well, I mean, that was was that the the News Corpness of it, or just the actual? No, actually, uh, you know, contrary to popular opinion, News Corp was incredibly supportive. Whatever you you make of Rupert and the family, they were all in on it and spent a lot of money. I just think that, you know, my background is usually starting things from scratch and building and and not cleaning up. You know, I think by the time I had gotten there, it was pretty much over and we have yet to see sort of comebacks online of sites. You know, we see things like Twitter that get new lives, but, you know, not necessarily down. But it, it just wasn't for me, but it was a great experience to learn, you know, sort of how to fix catastrophe and, you know, analyzing what mistakes were made and and how to come at it. But I like building new stuff and uh, it was too much of a fire drill. You'll learn. The Rupert family stuff, it's a conundrum for me, you know, because like I obviously don't believe in what News Corp has done and the fact that Rupert has probably single handedly had his hand involved in like 18 different global elections. But at the same time, I think his daughter is incredible. His granddaughter is like my baby sister, child, daughter, everything. So I'm very conflicted on that whole family, but I'm glad you had a really good experience. That's 
that's promising. And I, I grew up with James. We went to high school together. Um, you know, weren't super close, but had a lot of close friends in common and stayed in touch with them over the years. And certainly he was a factor in, in me taking the MySpace job. And I know he wasn't always comfortable with where News Corp was going. And certainly know Liz a little, who I think is wonderful and smart. I love her. I just think Liz is so great. She's great. I don't know Lachlan well, you know, met him a bunch of times. And obviously, you know, for my taste, where Fox News has gone isn't great. And I had a problem with it back in 2009. Now it's like spinning off the planet. And then Rupert was this very curious, you know, hard charging, super aware guy. I mean, I think maybe I was a little naive in terms of like, we sort of dealt on, you know, a personal level and on the MySpace level. And I found him great. And I, you know, would go out with him socially sometimes. And, you know, but I think he plays in a different game that I don't really understand on a, on a world uh, stage. And I think it's about power, not necessarily about point of view. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a middle guy, so I don't love either edge. What would you have done if you had been at News Corp when Trump was elected? What would you have done? Because you are you're very outspoken about, you know, well, I'll tell you the story. You know, I I write about media and technology, you know, since my operational jobs and I'm very opinionated and I'm known for not for being very blunt. And even if you're my friend, I can criticize a strategy, not a person. But I was on the board of MGM Film Studios for seven years and it's now been reported so I can speak about it. But I left the board because they asked me to stop writing about Trump specifically Mark Burnett. Wow. And I know Mark. Motherfucker. Yeah, I know Mark for, you know, 20 some odd years and he's always been charming, but I found him to be different during the Trump era and, you know, sort of thinking about what it could do for him. And, you know. I mean, Mark Burnett has been long considered one of the key orchestrators of Trump in like his whole persona and and the, how he got elected and yeah i don't i don't, I don't of, think i don't think he's smart enough to have thought that out that far back <laughs> i think it's you know basically a money morning quarterbacking of the situation but there's no question now if you want to look at it from a cultural perspective that the apprentice you know something that maybe coastals or coastal elites if you want to call them would say no one would believe this shit for a second it's entertainment but it made trump in a way you know, for the other side of America, someone that was decisive and someone that was strategic and powerful. And it absolutely helped in his presidency beyond other things. And, you know, I always felt, you know, I can still do my duties at MGM and it shouldn't matter what my political points of view were, but I had a public forum and I was talking about it. And we happened to own The Apprentice, uh, you know, at the time. And it was mm. Mark's show. Mark was not on the board, but I know that he had issues and he definitely went to board members and tried to get me to stop. And I basically told him to go fuck himself. And then I resigned from the board. So that's probably what I would have done. It's not so much that Trump got elected to your News Corp question. It's more of like what was done to help him get elected. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up, you know, lots of people will say that, you know, America is a sham and the Constitution's a sham and we're a racist, sexist, whatever country. And there are lots of that that is true for, for portions. But I believe the dream. Like our, our boy Bono, you know, America is an idea. And I don't care whether you set up a sham. I believe the dream. So that's what I want America to be. So I want news organizations to be like what I thought they would be like Edward R. Murrow or Walter Cronkite, you know, Cronkite, you exactly. know and that, and that what, you know, good was over evil. And not to say that there weren't rags back then, not to say that people like Hearst and others took advantage of the media for their own political gain. 
but it really, really struck me. And I was never political. I never paid attention to political stuff. I grew up in a, you know, well-to-do family where healthcare wasn't an issue and food wasn't an issue and schools weren't an issue, you know, pretty naive about the world. And I think the last five or 10 years, like many people opened up our eyes. And if it was a balanced view on both sides, um, I would be happier with the news, but it hasn't been specifically on TV news. And I could also understand, you know, cause I'll watch Fox to understand the other side. I could also understand how MSNBC or CNN drive them crazy, but it was, it was, it was an awakening and it was something that was maybe depressive to my point of view of how I wanted the world to be and how I wanted Rupert to be. And the Rupert behind the scenes was this curious guy who had all sorts of friends, talked to all sorts of politics. But at the end of the day, Fox just went in another direction and certainly in a direction that was, was unbeknownst to me, not only in reality, but that there were people actually like out there that believe that stuff. And that was my naivete. Well, maybe, I mean, just maybe in an alternate universe, maybe Rupert was a better person around you. And then when you left the News Corp world, it all went off the rails. And therefore, we are here today because of your departure. (laughs) And you didn't keep Rupert and those guys in check, the checks and balances. But I do want to talk about, I mean... We have a lot in common. I mean, we're the same age, basically. We're New York kids, though you are definitely a New York City boy. My family left New York City and I was raised in the suburbs in Rye, which is like, a, you know, I, I'm still not come to terms with that, though Quincy Smith likes to say I'm from New Jersey. That's fine. We both have had heart <laughs> surgery yep. and we both we both have undying love for the Irish boys of you, too. And I think one of my fondest memories and it's like one of these things when I tell people stories that don't know me and I'm like, oh, and I did this, I did this. They're like, really? Is that real? Did that really happen? And what you were part of one of those stories that I imagine people would be like, is that real, Brooke? And that is you and I flew to the South of France to have a, you know, to go to a U2 show, but as guests of the band. But I remember going back before that, the reason that came about was Paul McGinnis, the manager at that point, the the fifth member of that band was a big fan of your newsletter and had turned Bono onto it. And Paul, unlike some of the other people related to that band, gave me full credit, like for turning, like, you know, having a relationship with you and talking to him about it and being smart about it. That when he told Bono we were friends Bono then said something to me like I'd like to meet that Jason Hirshhorn and it was something along those lines that we were then next thing I know and maybe my memory is a bit different but it all happened really quickly where I just remember we're on a Lufthansa flight going to Nice to go hang out with them and fly to Spain to go to their show and was it San Sebastian I think I mean it was what a whirlwind it was San Sebastian I mean my memory of it was I had become friends with Paul McGinnis through Tom Preston, um, who's very close with Bono and sits on the red board. And he said, I love that Tom Preston. And and, and he knew that that we were friends and you had known the band for a while. And I, and I said, uh, or he said to me, Hey, you know, uh, Bono had just been hurt. He had hurt his back and they had postponed some of the tour. And the first dates back were going to be, he was resting at his plane in Ez and in, in France. Yep. And um, the first show back was going to be San Sebastian, Spain. And he said, why don't you and Brooke come out? And that was like at a point in my life where like I was done sort of hiding behind work and just, you know, ready to say yes to sort of experiences and jump around. And uh, you and I hit a, a Lufthansa flight to Germany, then to 
niece or, or, or remember niece. I got into my pajamas. We yeah. had like a little red rose. It felt like we were on a romantical date until until you told me the dream girl of yours, which basically you described Liz just like ten years before uh, meeting Liz. Oh, well, but that like was Nostrad- who you described. I'm like Nostradamus, and so we landed in France. <laughs> I remember, and we went to our hotel, which was the Hotel Negrescu in Nice, which Negrescu, is, yes, it, which yes, is one of the coolest hotels because every single room in that hotel is different and it's like a chambermaid's room a marilyn monroe room i mean they're all themed rooms it was very funky and then we walked i think we we took a car Well, that was a big mistake we were supposed to meet so it was very clear there was a it was a bit of a time crunch and we were getting picked up in the 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 bus of people and we were going to be brought to u2's jet to then but even before that we went to have dinner on the beach in Inez, and we thought we were just meeting, and I've never met Bono or Edge or Larry or or, um, or anyone in the band. Adam, uh, Adam yeah. the band. And, um, you know, we went to sit down with Paul, and all of a sudden, I think it was the 30th anniversary of their band, and all of yeah. a sudden, like, someone's hands were on my shoulder, and it was like, is this Jason Hirshhorn? And it was Bono, and we stayed up with them until, like, 2 o'clock in the morning drinking at that restaurant, and then the next morning... I think you and I were so plastered that we sort of were about to miss the bus to the plane. We had to walk, we had to run through the streets of Nice for like, we thought it was a five minute walk, but it was five minutes by car. And we were running down the main road, like sweating. I had been in wedges. I had to take them off and run barefoot. But that night was incredible. We were at my favorite restaurant in Ez and we're on the beach. And, but this is the type of story. Like I, even when I think back to that, I'm like did that really happen is that real but it we did we drank so much rosé we sang we we shared stories it was until the early early hours i remember i, I remember i was wearing like those you know hip hop jeans of the time that would like you know fall off and we were running down you know the avenue to get the bus and my pants were falling off and, and all of a sudden <laughs> we get to the we get to the airport and there's the big U2 jet and we take you know what is a short flight to to Biarritz we land in Biarritz. We get off the plane. But we're with the band. We're with the Everybody's band. on the plane. There's fans at the airport in Biarritz. And then we get into a bus, you know, uh, or a car thing that goes to San Sebastian. And I'll never with a forget. police escort. Police escort. And I'll never forget driving into the stadium in San Sebastian. And this was before Bourdain and my fan of Bourdain. But I didn't know that San Sebastian is like, if not the top food destination in the world, one of the great food destinations. Certainly. And I'll just remember like Bono and everybody was hanging out. We were able to talk to them, but I saw the craft service table. And, and, I, and I was like, I was like, I was like, I'll talk to the band later. There was like lobster and steak and everything. And Paul's assistant and worked with the band forever, who is like, you know, the most wonderful person in the world. Katrina, us, yeah, Katrina, yeah. Sorry, brought us to the... We, we watched the show from the soundboard, which was like 20 yards off center stage. And then when there was like three songs left, uh, she brought me and you to the, to on stage to the back, sitting behind Larry while he was playing drums for like 80,000 people in San Sebastian. And that was just one of those moments where, listen, when I was at MTV, I really did meet everybody. I mean, every musician you could think of, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, every name drop you could think of. But U2 was something that was very important to me since I was a young kid. I had gone to every tour and I'm now sitting on the drum riser with you overlooking everyone singing their song in a part of Spain that is very separate from, from you know, the Basque country, very sort of separate from the rest of Spain. 
And then me, you, um, I think the owner of the Spotted Pig and a couple of other people got into the car with the band, drove back to the airplane. It was like one o'clock in the morning. They had to sit up in the front with the Wait, band. Wait, but you don't remember. I remember this. Yeah. If you recall. So because Bono was injured, he was in that little, they had like a PT setup, right? Yeah. Like it was like a van, a truck. Yeah. And he was in there because his back, like after performing, they were doing PT on him on the way from the yeah. venue to the airport. And we had a police escort, all of that. But what they didn't realize was that we were going under an underpass and it happened to be too low for the truck that he was in. Do you remember this? I'm pretty sure this was San Sebastian. Yeah. I mean, I've been on, I've been to 50,000 shows, but this has definitely stood out because we were late to get to the plane and Paul, we all were. And Paul, you know, is the most incredible manager and business person. So he was like, he knew how much it was going to cost. If we took off late, you have to pay a fee because of the keeping the airport, you know, letting the planes take off. So he was at the the entrance of the plane telling us all, run, run, get on the plane, run, run, run. Like he in my in my memory, though, I don't think that's true. He was like there with a clipboard and like a whistle, like, get on, get your fucking ass. He definitely definitely had no clipboard nor nor whistle. (laughs) But I do remember taking off and going into the air. And he said to me, hey, why don't you go sit up and have dinner with Bono? And I'm like, what? So I, uh-huh. sit, I sit down. Bono comes from the back. He says, I've been wanting to meet you. Freston's told me a lot about you. And he goes, this is the first thing Bono I mean, you'd already, you No, because you had, didn't we have this? We had dinner the night before. So yeah, but we, we, yeah, but we were all like, basically plastered and drinking and singing yeah, songs. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so he said to me, he goes, Jason, I got to ask you. Was MySpace an engineering organization or was it more just media and marketing? And I and this is because Bono is an investor in Facebook early days. Bono has been incredibly involved with the the social media technology scene from early days back. Even a private equity firm at the time called Elevation. So, you know, he knew that world. Yeah. and And that was the first thing we jumped into. And, you know, for the next hour, we had dinner at 30,000 feet and we hung out. And as you know, um, you know, when you talk to Bono, he's very down to earth. He concentrates on you. We talked about a whole host of, you know, things like Wikipedia and other stuff. And I'll tell you a little anecdote to that story as well, because that was a great trip for us. When I was, when I left Viacom on MTV Networks, a couple of years later, Judy McGrath, who was my mentor and one of the people that had bought my first company to join there, was leaving the company. Her and Freston were intr- instrumental in U2's career as other people like Bill Flanagan and others at MTV. Oh, I love and, and they said, why don't you come out and meet us in Mexico city? And we went out to Mexico city. This was years later. And we spent the entire weekend with him. It was Bono's birthday. They did a shout out for her in front of a hundred thousand people. And I have to say of meeting all these bands over the years or all these celebrities or politicians, they were the guys that you wanted them to be. They're good people. They, they, if you remember, there were lots of people that were joining us on tour that time that had worked with the band for years. Some that were sick, some that were, you know couldn't walk, you know, due to uh, disease or accidents. And they would bring them out on tour periodically to just you know, let them know that we remember you and you helped us and your friends. And there's that family orientation. So as much as those are rock stars and they're global, they can sit down and, you know, no one can tell a story like like Bono. 
And I think it's a lot to do with the Irish, as you know. I have a I have a particular love for the Irish and and people of Ireland, uh, whether they're in Ireland or not. But Ireland itself. And I remember once when we were um, I was at a pub and in in Dalkey, and I was with several friends, including Bono. And you go into a pub there, and you know what's so different is like I when I was thirteen years old, I would literally pay whatever I had to not be seen in public with my parents. Like you couldn't pay me if I was at a restaurant and somebody I knew walked in from school, I would literally like slip down the chair tied under the table. Like I'd be so embarrassed. I was like, come on, just shut the fuck up. Like I don't want to be seen. I'd be so embarrassed. I'd roll my eyes. I was a petulant kid. And I think a lot of, you know, American kids are like that, but in Ireland it is so family oriented and you know, they don't care. It's Bono and in, in the, in the local pub. And, but you go in, into a pub and you could be in Dublin, you could be outside of Dublin, you could be in Northern Ireland, you could be the West of Ireland and you have, you know, families, you have grandparents, parents, kids, all there, all interacting with one another. You know, the 14 year old is going to get his dad a bag of crisps and there's no embarrassment. There's only joy and sort of community. And I think that then spawns this, you know, this different culture and we're just not built that way. And it's well, so- I, listen, I, 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 I think that's wonderful. You know, none of them had their mother sing show tunes at their bar mitzvah. So <laughs> um, like, like me, um, you know, scarred. It, it took me years and years and years before my mom died to, uh, to hang out with her in public. But, uh, what was her song? What was like the big song at your bar mitzvah? Did she like break into dance? Like showgirl? I had my bar mitzvah at the old Fillmore East in New York, which was a gay men's club called the Saint. It was a magnificent space. And we had a planetarium dome on the upper, upper, uh, what was this, like 1986? Um, 1987, 1986. And my okay. mom had, you know, basically <laughs> told me she was going to work out every night to fit into her dress. And I said, well, you know, I got to tell you, you're not losing that much weight. So where are you going? And then <laughs> the night of my bar mitzvah, like all the lights went down, the planetarium dome oh, God. You know, has stars. And then someone says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, introducing Susan. And she comes out on like a, a, platform like conveyor belt singing stop the world i want to get off and um, you know and you you can understand why i have an affinity for many irish because i'm a loud mouth because my mom sang at my bar mitzvah so um you know i remember having having dinner with bono it was us talking over one another constantly (laughs) that I remember as well and I think um, I think a lot of people listening who know you they're gonna really be like oh my god the bar mitzvah story it all comes together well Jason you and I we've we talk pop culture all the time you are very similar to my my girly Brit Morgan Sachs who was on uh, the other week as on the pod you're both New York City kids you both text me all the time with no context just links to stories and I always respond in the same fashion to both of you saying yeah that was in PCM this week or last week. I've already yeah. written about it. Like, and you just keep doing it. You don't When I text you, it's more of like, <laughs> here's the thing. I'm like every other American or, or like many who feels very dirty and terrible when I read these stories because I can't imagine the invasion of privacy and they really don't matter in a world that is literally on fire in every single category we can think of. But I know... Uh, like anybody else, I like stories and I like to gossip 
and I like, you know, to, to find out what's going on. And sometimes I just shake my head and I know you'll know. <laughs> um, and I tend to come in on the on the back end of some of these pop culture things, whether they're Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde or the cheating scandals, though I've been following the chess stuff. And uh, I know you'll know. And I also know that I can give you my point of view versus putting it on Twitter that that you could you could beat me up, but it's not going to be public. I can be a little ageist. I can be a little sexist, never racist, but. You know, you'll you'll hear me out. And sometimes when you've disagreed with me, I've turned out being right. Um, Well, yes. Recently, we did have that. You really went off with the Harry and Olivia thing. And I was defending Olivia. And then I may have gotten to a point where I couldn't defend after seeing the film. But I do want to talk. You just talked about the chess cheating. And so let's touch on something from the newsletter this week, which was the big theme was like liar, liar, pants on fire. We had three cheating scandals. It started in the chess world, which was, you know, rocked the world because of of uh, vibrating anal beads. We'll get to that. Then it moved into the it's, poker it's world. Always, it's always the anal beads that really break. It's always, it always comes down to it. Yeah. Um, then we get into poker which I don't believe anal beads played a part, but who knows? I mean, this might be a new cottage industry. And then we moved into fishing in the competitive sports fishing world where um, the poor fish were, were, they had the, the, these, this particular team shoved lead weights among other things, including other dead fish fillets into the poor orifices of these fish and got busted when, you know, a bunch of people said, no way does, their weight of fish make sense because they have the same fish we have um, yeah. only to be be literally caught red-handed as they cut open the fish to find lead weights just one after the other so going back to the chess thing I feel like you're a Howard Stern guy right you listen to Howard on a re- on the regular I listen to him every, every single day since I ran Contra Okay. Well, there you go. So, Every day. I've never missed a Howard I mean, show. I mean, have you hung out with Howard? Because that's my, like, you had your Bono moment. I need a Howard moment. Like, I feel like, I feel like I'd be best friends with his wife, the cats, the whole thing. It would be my dream. Um, I have met him once, but it was in the early days of Viacom. Mel Carmazin. Can't Tom Freston make that happen? It was it was more Mel Carmazin, but I've met Gary and some of the staff there. And, you know, Howard's uncomfortable usually meeting a lot of people. But, you know, it's like any other artist that you love, you feel like he's a proxy for you. I mean, Howard could be as easily at my table during, you know, Rosh Hashanah as anyone else in there. He says funny stuff. I remember lines from my whole life. And I think he is, you know, even in my own interviews that I do, you know, learn self-deprecation and the importance of doing real research beyond the, the, the tertiary. And, you know, he is, he's, he's the greatest. I just listened to two hours of him and Jan Wenner. Um, I mean, on, I do uh, think he's the greatest. I think he's yeah. the greatest interviewer. I think he is the greatest. I think he, when you listen to him and he can go from having an unbelievably in-depth conversation where he did the research that made Charlie Rose, like probably pale in comparison to how, how well-researched Howard is to then, you know, talking to Baba Booey and doing phone sex pranks and talking about, you know, he's, guys he's being well, able to give themselves blowjobs. Yeah, I love he, him so much. He's well-rounded well just like everybody else. And I think he's, you know, tapered himself on, off a bit but i i did listen to his you know i did his listen take to on chess? His, his chess stuff and i read some of the stuff in your newsletter and you know when these things happen i always say to myself first because i admire a good criminal if they could get away with it like just in terms of like you know almost like a, a jewel thief in, in a way but 
I always hear these things and I say to myself, like, there's no fucking way this is real because they couldn't be that stupid in a public forum to cheat like that. It's not like a steroid or something that, that is, that is so hidden. Um, and then, then the analysis comes out on the internet, then the news starts coming out, then the probabilities and all that kind of starts coming out. And you're like, are they that stupid? Are they psychopaths? Or are they that good and they just got, you know, uh, caught today? I could say that on the chess side, some of those things like probability and the, the smart eye of the of the opponent will bring that out. On the fish side, these might be some of the dumbest That's ones. That's just the stupid. Ever. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like... See his fish cut open and like his face just is just standing like, there. Yeah, and it, it reminded me of like that movie Role Models where the guy's like, I did not steal those TVs. And then you have him on video go, going, I can't believe I'm stealing these TVs. <laughs> Well, the other guy ran off, right? He like took off. So the other guy was just standing there. They could say nothing. I loved other like, yeah. call the police, call the police. But the chest thing I think is so interesting. I mean, the the anal beads thing, there's no evidence whatsoever of this. It came on a Reddit uh, ch- chain. And I mean, even it, just the fact that it's still like alive and well. I need, I, need it, I need it to be true because it's fucking genius. It's Though genius. obviously I now zero in on someone's eyes and jaws. I did the whole thing. You and I are the same. I want to see if he's like gets that little bump up there. But what I thought was so interesting and the reason why I mentioned Howard is because it really I did all the same stuff you did, babe. I read everything. I was reading Twitter. I was reading articles. I was trying to get like I'm not a chess player. So the layman's version of what went down. And then I thought, well, as great as this champion is, like, was he potentially a sore loser? And it wasn't until listening to Howard and a caller who's an avid chess chess person. And, and Howard was talking about his experience playing chess and going to the Marshall Chess Club, which incidentally is down the street from me on 10th Street. But he then they start talking about how it's realistic that this guy cheated. And they said, listen, these are some of the hardest fucking moves ever. This is the hardest, most challenging moves. Any chess player is pained. You can see the thinking that goes on. You can see the the inner turmoil and the yep. like the inner workings of the mind going with what, you know, while they're playing things out in their head. And this guy just was like playing tic-tac-toe. <laughs> he was like yeah. moving things, showing zero fucking emotion. Then like Magnus is like, huh? No way. I'm yeah. out. And and now he's being really vocal. I mean, he even put out statements this week, you know, or maybe it was or last week where he's like, there's and, and now they're saying that there's, it looks like this guy is going to be taken down as a cheater, both online and often. I got a lot of responses on the newsletter about it's interesting. A lot of people believe it's like, you know, whether it's Gen Z or millennial, but it's that the kids that were raised with you and I, you know, I mean, I just my first award I ever got, by the way, this week ever in my life came this week from Delta. I got a, a paperweight, a paperweight congratulating me on being a million miler, which I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's the first award I ever won. Like, well, by the way, I they, they, they just they just paid for for giving you that award because you mentioned it on your podcast. But yeah, right. well, I mean, I do like Delta for that, though. They did piss me off last week. That's another story. But but what I, my point is that I grew up going, I was in horse, I was a horse girl. I did horse competitions. There was no 
fourth place. You got a blue ribbon, you got a second place ribbon, you got a third place ribbon. There was no, you know, good congratulations on participating ribbons. So there was no like soccer teams, like you either came in first or you came in like whatever, but there was no like, thanks for participating trophy. And the kids that, you know, the next generation of kids that got all that, they were just so compelled. They needed it. They needed it. So a lot of people are saying it's that mindset of why cheating has become more common because people are like, they have to win. People are cheating at Wordle. You know, people are going to, they're cheating to themselves. They're literally no one else to prove, but they can't, they can't miss their tracks. So they're going to these, you know, places online to plug in words to see what'll work because they're cheating. They're just, it's a constant thing. I think um, it's interesting because I've thought about writing about this for media redef and certainly after reading your newsletter, you know, reading your newsletter last week sort of, you know, gave me some ideas. I think, Listen, cheating is as old as is prostitution or anything else. You know, there's many different ways you do it. You do it for glory. You do it for money. You do it because of insecurity. You do it because you don't want to disappoint your father. They're all the wrong reasons. And you see it in society and sports with steroids or even cheating's like, you know that that ball was out, but the linesman called it in and it benefits you. So you're not giving it back. I think there's something about America And this is one of the darker sides of America because, you know, cheating and corruption and all those other kinds of things have always been there. And certainly more so in the Trump era where there's this idea that other people are doing it. So why shouldn't I? You hear this a lot in the Lance Armstrong documentaries, the the biker who took steroids and won many. Of course. um, But he's like everybody else was and the same in baseball. And now we're going to even the field or. This And I don't know if it's just this generation, may have started in the 80s or more, where it's not about the journey. It's not about the accomplishment. It's about the trophy. It's about the fame. You know, it's and, I, and not to disparage Twitch, but this was a Twitch guy, you know. Yeah, and he started, he was so, a streamer and that's, he got that adrenaline from yeah. that junkie. So there, there, is, there is something about, it's, it's, you know, listen, we are a fame-driven society there are people who go on TV and talk about subjects they don't know in such a, you know, sort of uh, non-layered manner that they enough to get by with their talking points, but they couldn't be questioned beyond it. You want to be a champion, but you can't make it to that next level. And, you know, listen, the, the great elites that have played the game, whether it, you know, in, in sports like Jordan or Kobe or Tom Brady, let's put together the deflate gate. Cause I, I, I think that even if that was true, He's not winning that much, meaning they put the work in, you know, Brady called them that they were the edgers, that they were in the gym earlier, in the gym later. They just lived their sport. And there are some people who want the prize. This is it's no different than the person who buys the car they can't afford to show what, what they are. There is this part of society, which is where the, you know, the appearance is more important than the journey and the real work. And I will tell you, for me, you know, having inherited stepchildren from, from Liz and, you know, wanting to sort of set up, you know, morals and ethics in the house where you do the work and there is no such thing as like a certificate of um, participation type stuff. Like, I don't want you to feel bad if you didn't win a trophy, but you didn't win a trophy because there were other people that practiced better or had innate abilities or, you know, were stronger for whatever reason. That's, that's the game. And you can maybe win in other things. You know, kids find the sport that they're good at or the video game that they're good at. And, you know, I, I imagine that these things were going on for a long time, but the, the, what the magnification of these things now is so huge 
that it makes everything look like an epidemic. And I think the, the chess thing, funny enough, you have Queen's Gambit and you have this happening. It's probably going to be the best thing that ever happened to chess. Chess will be like the new paddle tennis or, or something right. for, for pickle most ball, pickleball. Yeah, yeah, yeah pickle exactly. Ball, I do think it's something deeper. And, you know, these three situations, the chess thing, I understand less because I'm not a chess player. I've never played poker before, but now having read all the things around the poker incident, it's fascinating. And you could see these guys are so smart. These players are so smart that the minute this guy loses, you could see the look on his face that like something's rotten in Denmark. Something is not right. right. Though it's interesting. I talked to some of our friends who are avid poker players and I got sent a an Excel spreadsheet of sort of the breakdown of the world championship of poker players yep. where they stand on the spectrum. And a majority of them don't think she cheated, but they think something was like something went wrong. And whether she was so high, like her response, she played something wrong and it, it was not, you you know, maybe it was just one in a billion, but then her response was so flawed because she gave back the money. Yeah, in my mind, you don't ever give back the money because the money is never. My, I guess my point is, if you really didn't cheat, your reputation's everything. You give back the money, you're basically saying that one, you're either not a competitor, or two, you did something wrong, and and they would have to try to prove it. You know, these things once they're under a microscope, rarely, rarely, rarely don't get um, exposed. And again, I don't know the mechanics of that. I'm starting to see if she was squirreling around in a chair and was using anal beads as well. But my point is that table of smart people all freaked out during that moment. And you're also going to have the, the issue of sexism, which is this is a table of men. It's a woman. With that one won the woman. Hand. Her boyfriend was at the game. So people. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of this. I do want to touch on because it, it, it really is a great segue to our next to- topic of conversation, yep. which is going to be Kanye, uh, yep. which is all unfolding in real time this week. But going back to that it's obsessive need for fame, that, the, that that proximity to fame, I think that's the world we're in right now. You know, Kardashians, Kanye are sort of at that pinnacle. Um, and so moving on to, to, we have Paris Fashion Week, where this is all sort of going down. We have another pinnacle of sort of fame. The, the now, I think, most famous model in the world is Bella Hadid. We've seen her and her sister sort of came into the world of of pop culture as daughters of a star on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. That's how their careers were launched. We've seen these girls, along with Kardashians and whatnot, um, become, they were already beautiful girls. They were all beautiful, but they have become more beautiful due to enhancements that were not how they were born. And, you know, to each his own, I'm certainly not uh, innocent of that. I'm all about enhancements. But this week we had Bella Hadid um, do a show stopping performance with this designer. I don't know if they're called Caperni. I'm, I'm, this is not my world, but they spray painted this dress on her with this technology that's been, um, discussed, I guess, over the last 10 years, there was a Ted talk about it. It was incredible. It was a jaw dropping moment that should have been the piece de resistance of Paris fashion week there. Then we followed up with enter Kanye. And before we get to Kanye's show, Kanye opened the Balenciaga show, which was, I have it in the newsletter. It was, it was, you know, it was the best way to describe it was a post-apocalyptic horror show where people were sitting in like a mud ring and it was playing very ominous music, very black, white, gray, literally walking around in mud, stomping around and, and opened by Kanye, all wearing very expensive Balenciaga clothes, walking through the mud. And he had a grill that said Balenciaga. Okay. So I'm thinking this is as low as it goes at Paris fashion week. And then, (laughs) then we get Kanye's 
fashion show that was meant to, it was a surprise, like a pop-up fashion show. And we have, you know, he's, he is, he is like a creation of Trump and Mark Burnett himself. He knows what's going to get people talking. He knows exactly what he was doing. And that is he put his models in white lives matter t-shirts, including the lovely Candace Owens. Uh, I say that with lots of air quotes around it. Candace Owens, a very outspoken, very conservative Republican black woman, big supporter of Trump and out there proudly wearing white lives matter t-shirts. He got Bob Marley's granddaughter wearing it and it became a shitstorm. And And then fast forward, we had a Vogue editor and stylist, Gabriella Karifa Johnson, spoke out about it not being art and being just, you know, a provocation, really. And then unleash the fucking Kraken. We have the Kanye or yay. We've all come to know so well, lashing out using Instagram, weaponizing Instagram to bully and attack a person. And in this case, a woman, another woman he loves to go after and was making fun of her style, her appearance, all of this, and just has now gone after the Kardashians again and accusing them of stealing his children. Like my point is like, where are we? What are your thoughts? Why do people, and I know you're probably a hip hop fan, a nineties hip hop fan. I know like, where are you stand in this sort of like idol tree of, of a Kanye? Whereas like if he were a woman, AKA Britney, he's insane, but he's being lauded by many as a genius. What, where are we? How did we get here? I'm so confused. Sadly, I think about this way too much um, because of. Oh, I need you to think about this because you can help affect change. Because of how much I respect Kanye as an artist. And Maddie Karras, who runs the Music Redef newsletter for us, won't write about this extracurricular non music stuff for, for Kanye because he thinks, he probably thinks he's insane, but he also thinks that he's sick. But I think Kanye is a very unusual experiment for us because I think we project onto Kanye. So my, my sort of run in with Kanye happened very early on in his producer career. Um, I was invited to listen to Jay-Z's black album. Jay-Z played me the whole album, like one-on-one or with a friend of mine, uh, Eric Eisner and I went down to the studio and he played us every track. And as, as we walked into the room, just blaze and Kanye people that I did not know at the time, other than by name were leaving and they had produced tracks on it. And this was before Kanye was, you know, sort of super known. He was starting to get tracks sold and you would see him around MTV every once in a while. And he was an outspoken guy, but still, I'm not saying he was shy. He was always not shy. You could see by the genius Netflix documentary, he was always who he was. But the psychology of him snapped when his mom died. I mean, that's that's and we as people who've lost our moms know what that does to a person. But you also know that there are ways to get help. That's the narrative. But let let me let me continue as the sort of the way I've looked at it, which is, okay. uh, you know, then he becomes super famous and and the outrageous things he says in some ways are they're political um, their social commentary and they're of the time. And in other ways, it's Ozzy Osbourne supposedly biting, you know, the, the bat's head off a stage, meaning before everybody knew what the term gaslighting meant, there are people who know how to say outrageous things in front of the media, you know, or the, the Beatles being taken out of context on their bigger than Jesus Christ. Kanye in that respect is no holds barred and he's fun to watch. 
And I will tell you, after every single Kanye incident happens, I go back to his performance on SNL when Ben Affleck hosted and he plays Black Skinhead. And to me, it's the greatest performance in the history of SNL. The guy is a pure genius in terms of his beats and everything. And when he goes out there and he starts ta- starts doing clothing things and sneaker things and doing deals no one's done before, and you know he produced for everybody, it's wonderful. I think what, what you start to see in the transition was closely tied to, yes, when his mother died during a, a surgical procedure. And you could see from the movies and from the history that he was so close to her that that was a bedrock in his life. And people like to assign that he went a little nutty and, and became a little angrier and sad. Funny enough, listen to that album with Black Skinhead. When you're worth $500 million, usually and you're an artist, you tend to soften up. You're not as angry. Kanye gets angrier with every record. Kanye gets angrier as he becomes more famous. And I think that we all have this vision. You know, I played you that video of me singing the Kanye song. You know, I miss the old Kanye, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And he's basically saying, I know that you don't like me now because I'm not as agreeable or I'm not, I'm too angry. I miss the old Kanye, straight from the gold Kanye. Chop up the soul Kanye, sit on his gold Kanye. I hate the new Kanye. The bad mood, Kanye. The always rude, Kanye. Jazz in the news, Kanye. I miss the sweet, Kanye. But it gets beyond angry. I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, like, we're not going to sit here, you know, Hitler could have been a genius, but that doesn't say, like, well, you know, he killed all these people. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's a genius. Like, I think where we're at, Kanye, yes, has done incredible things. He is clearly a genius. That That is not, like, it's not, it, it, it doesn't mean either or. Like, he is a genius, but he is now also... So whether it's whether it's insanity or maybe that's not being fair to insane people, maybe he's just a fucking asshole, but he's going after people. He's weaponizing his yeah. audience and going after innocent, you know, private citizens, attacking them, calling them all sorts of names, forgetting his, you know, what he's doing with, with broadcasting the kids and stuff like that. But threatening to kill Pete Davidson, putting in that in the video, threatening these board members of, of companies that he doesn't like um, where their children are being now harassed. Like, and now going after this and then things, oh, I just can delete the Instagram. Like that's a childish, you know, yeah. behavior. Oh, it's gone. I've deleted the Instagram. Like, let's move on. Well, a lot of people do move on. I'm just wondering, do you think now, do you think there's going to be like, we finally hit the point where there are going to be repercussions, where brands are going to say, fuck this, we're not doing it. Labels aren't going to work with him. Or do they just say, doesn't matter. He sells out and we're just going to, you know, he's attacked women before. We're going to continue to allow that. I think it's so much deeper. I think that, first of all, there's going to be some of that, maybe. I think that, as you know, whether you're a record label, a clothing line, a sneaker line, whatever, if you do business with Kanye, there is a point where he is going to fuck you over. Now, they may have fucked him, too, but Kanye ultimately has a problem with authority, and he will ultimately find a way to have a fight with you, depending on anything. And I don't know the specifics of every deal he did, But there's clearly a case of, if you know anyone that's been bipolar, they don't have an inner monologue. When they're up on the hype, they will say or do anything. And social media is a terrible animal device for that because someone can get out there and be angry. On the other hand, when he talks about artist contracts and other kinds of things, he has a point. The problem is they get conflated. When I see what he did with Pete Davidson, when I see what he did with the Vogue editor, when I see what he did with Kim Kardashian... Those things worry me because in the Trump era, it's very dangerous. We can't assume assume that the way that we would dismiss things is the way that everybody else would dismiss. And I also don't believe that he's being 100% truthful, meaning he's being Kanye 
Um, he has an ulterior motive in some cases. Of course. He maybe can't control himself in some cases. Of course. In some cases, he actually means that. But how am I going to say how Kanye should act? And then you go back to this, like, you know, he's not R. Kelly. He, you know, I could still listen to the music. I guess my point is the same way that Bono turned out, at least in the ways that we were exposed to him to be the person that we wanted him to be. There are things about our stars today because we have so much insight into them through social media, through coverage, through leaks, whatever it may be, that people aren't their persona. Meaning, you know, when you watch the Bourdain doc, when you watch the Bourdain doc, you know, you would think that you could walk up to Bourdain on the street and he would just be so cool. But it turns out that he really was an introvert on an extrovert's platform. And what we saw on screen wasn't the whole him. So and that's fair. I think that's yeah. fair. But with Kanye, I do think it's 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 creating um, in a in a what whether he means it or not, whether he's doing it for you know to be nefarious or for just for to sell more to create a, a, a new movement, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear: he's a church, he's a school. We know the people now running his business. I believe anybody who is within his proximity is just is so consumed with the need for fame and fortune. They don't see through, they can't see the forest through the trees, but at the same time, he is a bunch of kids. You look at the comments on Instagram and he's giving permission to these people to be angry and hateful and violent and aggressive. And, and it's not rock and roll. It's not yeah. punk rock. It's not fucking old school rap. It's just, it's the, he's taking down his own. I mean, you're, he's having people turn on him in his own sort of network and community and other artists. So I, you're starting to see things where he is, he's antagonizing. He is trying to copy the Trump playbook. It's and- very, it's very similar. It is very similar to Trump in certain ways. I'm not talking about politically, but I'm talking about no. people that basically say, um, I, I could I could control him or I could give him advice that he'd listen to. And whether it's the Adderall on Trump's side or whether it's the bipolar aspect, Kanye doesn't listen to anybody. He may respect people. He may take into consideration, but ultimately it's his word. Did you watch the ABC interview? I did. I, ne- I, did. I never it watched was- his interviews. And the ABC interview to me was like anyone that has a question about Kanye as to how severe the the disease may be needs to watch that interview because it, it is off the planet. Crazy. And I tweeted about it and I said, anybody that is connected to him, that is not taking responsibility to help him and is, is just getting paid off of this clearly, clearly ill person is, is guilty as far as I'm concerned. So I could sit here and talk all day. I don't care how many friends I have that are, that are connected to him that feel differently. I, I stand by my, my belief, but you know, when, um, when you're a critic, when you're a critic, you have to be able to be called out but it's not a personal thing. And I don't think but he that can't that, be that called review. out. He loves accusing people. He oh, yeah, loves yeah. attacking people, but God forbid you say one thing about him. And it's like, you know, cry me a river. I'm going to fucking, you know, it's war, whatever he's declaring. So it's not the answer. I really thought that something, and I'm not kidding. I really thought something was going to happen to Pete Davidson. That some crazy would take, would, would take it to heart. And I have to say like, you know, there is a place for critics in our society. But he's also pulled back. Have you seen Pete Davidson? I mean, he was everywhere. He's ubiquitous for the last two years. He's been nowhere. I haven't seen hide nor hair of him. I think he had to take a step back from the crazy. Neither you or I could ever really truly understand what that level of fame is like and what it does to magnify, you know, personal traits anyway. We've been next to it, but when you're in it, and I'm not making an excuse for Kanye. I think he is on both sides of both sides of the coin. And I think what has really, 
I remember writing about this in Media Redef and saying, like, I'm done with him or I'm done with him or someone needs to pull him off stage because they're not helping him. But at the end of the day, he makes his own choices. Some family members have moved. I mean, the, the girl's getting divorced from him, for Christ's sake. You know, it's, it's one of these things where, like, I want him to be a certain way, but he's Kanye, and that's what he's basically saying, which is don't put anything on me. You know, people would say, well, why doesn't Kanye come to me for advice? At the end of the day, who's going to tell Kanye how to be Kanye? And if his goal is being in the media and the press, like outside the Paris fashion shows where he looks like he's in – listen, that ABC interview could almost be an SNL skit. It could almost be out of a movie like, you know, Jim Carrey living in the bubble or, you know, Matthew McConaughey being on TV 24-7. He's dazzled at his own attraction, and it, it makes me feel a little sick, and yet I'm not going to lie – I'll, I'll open up your newsletter or I'll see it on, you know, Twitter or something. And I'll click on the link to read about what's the, the, the next thing feeling a little dirty. I know but, I feel a little dirty. You know. I, though I did get attacked last week when I, I deemed it crazy that a man is opening a school and, and publicly accosting his wife for not sending his children to this unaccredited school. Doesn't believe in books. Has never claims he's never read a book. And so when I yes, tweeted that, it was that. absurd. <laughs> People were like, oh, see, you're programmed by the machine. You know, you don't know any. I'm like, okay, I can't. These are, this is an argument I can't win. Just like you can't fight with Trump people. It's just like. Bro, there there is not a game that goes by in, in our lives, specifically as Americans, where, you know, when I open up a magazine or I read an article on or see a picture on Twitter where evangelists or evangelicals, sorry, evangelicals are on both sides of Trump's arms, um, holding him and praying to him as if he's the chosen. When when that becomes the reality, I'm just waiting for the Martians to land. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, this is like, this is like everyday shit. To be honest with you, Twitter's been a better place without Trump for me. But if Elon does this deal, I'm sure he's back. And then I'm going to have to make the decision on whether I, I have to say some of this stuff like physically makes me sick. And yet I also know that like I'm judging other people based on my own morality and ethics. And that's what I thought you were supposed to do or the way that I was brought up as an American. Well, that's right. But you have an entire generation being brought up by Kanye to believe that this is acceptable behavior. So there we are. And with that, I think like I could sit here and talk all day. I don't know about you, Jason, but maybe we should talk about having our own podcast because I feel like I feel like we would be really supported in this effort. And what what do I do all day? I'm waiting for Liz to set up, you know, the break fast (laughs) and I I've got another two hours, so I could go. I, I'll talk outside alone, but whatever I know, you want. seriously, I got to go do Pilates, but I do want to talk about our my, the the final thing of. Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays is our take on Mary Fuck Kill, which is make out, marry, or mute. So I want you to tell me yours. And again, this could be a real person, a fake person, a character, an idea. And um, why don't I go first? So it gives you a little minute to to gather your thoughts, um, make amends with Liz, all of that. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so I'm I've sure thought about this one. Yeah. She loves Ray. She loves Liev Schreiber now because she's watching Ray Donovan. So, oh I mean, God! You know. I those were the old back in the, the, the days of hanging out with Liev in the nineties. Was fun, fun. Um, we could talk about that offline. But um, okay, so my makeout, I fully, I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about this guy is Magnus, the chess champion, five-time grandmaster. I think he's just so adorable and principled and driven and brilliant. And I want to make out with Magnus. Um, Mary, we talk about Ireland a lot. And there is one person in that whole 
uh, conversation that didn't get a mention. And I know she's a, an avid podcast listener and newsletter reader. And that is my darling Susan Hunter. Uh, I was actually at Susan Hunter's wedding. I'll never forget the wedding. I'll never forget her amazing custom made um, uh, Converse white sneakers that were under this gorgeous dress. I She is my fashion idol, my music m- maven. She's everything and then some. Still works with Paul McGinnis to this day. And so I... Will you marry me, Susan Hunter? That's all I would say. I know Andrew, her husband, might have a problem with that, but I could just like come in and hang out in Dublin and really? it would be all good. I think, I, think, I think it was actually Susan Hunter that took it. I think to the it was Susan. It wasn't because Katrina yeah. was Bono's assistant. And, that's and, right. That's right. And it was Susan and Susan with her. It was Susan. Was, Susan, we love you. Yeah, we love Susan. And then mute, I am, you know where this is going. I mute yay, Kanye, all things yay. I mute the fuck out of it. Mute, 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 mute. That is it for me. Let me think. Makeout is going to have to be Dua Lipa or Dua Lipa, as they say. I, I'm a fan of, you know, a fan of her music, but also, you know, incredibly beautiful. But I also love her newsletter. I don't know if you read it. Service 90. I think it's called Service 95. No, about, Dua Lipa has a newsletter? Oh, my God. It's like super deep, like culture, her picks around the world, top, you know, topics, whether they're, no you know, female oriented or not, like around art, music architecture, fashion, and, you know, we'll I'm, put, I'm we'll a, put that in the show notes, guys. That's yeah, amazing. I, I had no idea. I loved her episode on song exploder when she explained, you know, her, uh, her recording process. I love her remixes by, is it the blessed Madonna or the black Madonna? I forget it. Uh, and I just think that she has built a career that is killer. And I remember like when I was in Europe this summer, like getting into the airport and like every seventh poster, for some brand is on the wall and she's also a killer dresser. So that's my, my shallow, but also deep. Her newsletter is my, called, by the way, is service 95. I'm so into yes. this. Okay. And she does a great job. Um, though they need to format it better for mobile, but other than that, it's good oh, okay. or great. And, um, Mary, let's see. Um, other than my beautiful fiance, Liz, who, um, I'm going to marry. Yes, um, you are. I got to tell you, I've always had, if I could have Sade literally sing to me for the rest of my life, oh. um, uh, I think she is married, but I think she's still one of the most beautiful women in the world and has made every, uh, every single record she's We've ever made. We've all had sex to Sade. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, the meters are off if she, if she had a nickel. Um, <laughs> and I'm still, I'm still dying for, for the next album. And it's so funny because... You know, there is a time, even you and I keep up with everything on a daily basis. We read and watch voraciously. Um, and yet, you know, when it's time to play video games or it's time to listen to music, you still can't help but put in some of the oldies. And uh, to me, that stuff is timeless, though Liz calls me an old man, but I guess I'm becoming an old man. And then what was the other category? Mute. Who do you want to mute? Or what do you want to mute? Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, okay. Mute, mute would be like like the first level. I would pay for more, um, more on top of it, which is you know complete silence. Um, uh, you know, people like her with her tone and her voice, I think, are destructive to the country um, and can't have a conversation. They can only yell, and I don't like fanatics of any kind. Um, that's not a man or a woman thing. Um, no, I I don't uh, think there's, there's a big far spread between Kanye and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not going to lie. Well, uh, 
he's a genius. He's a genius and an artist. She's not a genius, but their their rhetoric is the same. Their anger and their tenacity and their 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 bullying is the same. You know, the, the thing about Kanye that's interesting, just to put a cap on it, is that when people that I admire, like Kid Cudi and, you know, John Legend and some others, like sort of have had it. And and these are people that respect him, that have worked with him, that have known him for a long time, that have loved him. They they see an end to it. I There's still something about Kanye, and I'm sure if he was here, would say, go fuck yourself, Jason, because don't tell me how to act. But, um, you know, there's still something very sad about what's happened to him. And he has discussed this. I think he discussed this on, on Letterman or Jimmy Kimmel, I forget, where he said the reason he doesn't take meds is because he can't feel himself in terms of the creative process and that he can't be muted down. And I can understand what happens, but there's also a lot of damage. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I don't we have to worry about our own kids or our own friends or our own family. But, you know, you even read like today when I was reading through your stuff, and I took a link somewhere, one of the Kardashian sisters like said something publicly to Kanye about like, listen, I don't want to do this in a public forum. Yeah, that was just today. Chloe, yeah. Chloe is saying like, please stop. And then he's, t- he's taken her comment and made it a post, which will, I'm yeah. sure will be deleted soon and saying, you're a fucking liar. All of you are liars. Yeah. You kidnapped my children. Like all of this is just like, it's just garbage. And it's horrible yeah. for the, the and, soul. And to people like Kanye, who because of the bipolar aspect, but also may have an entitlement thing, being told no, no differently than a Trump is like the worst thing you could ever do. Then they go crazy. Well, yeah, like a two year old, by the way. I mean, that's that the other people that can't learn the word no are a two year old and you grow out of it and you become an, a functioning member of society or you don't or you're kind of very much like everybody else, which was when it's someone you admire or someone that you love or someone that you like. And this happened with Rupert and I, you know, it takes you a while to judge, even if you're going to judge or it takes you a while because that's not necessarily the person you know, or that's not necessarily the person you want them to be. And I think there's a lot of that in society. But when you play with fame, that's the gamble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love you. I love you. This was fun. David. David, by the way, is the world's best producer. So I think we should all give a shout out to David. We've been doing this for six months. It's so crazy. So I want to thank you, Jason and David, and for everyone listening and those of you talking about it. I just got a shout out on Kara Swisher's new podcast on. So thank you, Naima Raza and and Kara Swisher for, for calling attention to this little podcast. And here's to another six months. And Jason, let's do this. Let's we'll talk offline. I want to do more with you, but I love you. I'm free free from today till the end of the year. Okay, great. Well, guys, thank you so much. See you next Thursday. This is Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays and have an amazing week. Talk soon. Pop Culture Mondays.